We might not be able to agree on what reality is, but you can turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com so smart for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code so smart to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 134. Over the last few years, I've invited a number of experts on this podcast to discuss why people believe different things, and why they hold on to those beliefs in spite of evidence they might be wrong. Sometimes I think we get lost in that discussion because when we use the word wrong, it can mean that the person we're trying to convince is factually incorrect. For instance, they might think vaccines cause autism or that the earth is flat. But also when we use that word wrong, we can mean that they just see the world differently, which is to say we might agree on the facts, but not their interpretation. And since we think that the way that we make sense of those facts is the right way, sometimes the only way, we think that the way they make sense of those facts is wrong. After all, if we thought we were wrong, well, we would have to change our minds. In this second sense of wrong, when we argue with people, we don't want to merely correct their misconceptions. We want to change the way they make sense of the world, and we want to persuade people to hold the views that we hold so that they change the way that they think and feel, and at the very least, change the way they behave. Persuasion of this second kind, which is mostly about attitudes, changing the way people feel about things, is something that we've been doing since we've been doing anything. And most of our arguing about that kind of stuff took place in groups. You see, if an individual solved a problem or discovered valuable information or recognized a danger or related a novel experience or developed an accurate prediction or created an innovation, when one person did that in the group, the rest of the group could benefit from it. And so our brains evolved in sort of information exchange environments. But the problem with these exchanges was that not every fellow primate was trustworthy. I mean, they could just be wrong, right? Or they could be trying to mislead us for their own gain. Therefore, groups always faced a dilemma, and that dilemma became a selective pressure. 
is something that cognitive scientists call a trust bottleneck. A particular idea could be harmful, but it could also be extremely useful. And if we reject that idea out of hand, then the group could miss out on a tremendous shared gain. And so to overcome trust bottlenecks, cognitive scientists like Hugo Mercier argue that, well, we develop the ability to argue. And argumentation allows those of us who have already adopted a new good idea the opportunity to persuade the resistant or incorrect others to change their minds. And the power of argumentation comes from asymmetry, because when each person contributes a strongly biased perspective to a group, to a pool, it allows everyone in that group to be lazy because we can offload the cognitive effort of evaluating these arguments to the group itself. The group can be smarter than any one person, so by depending on group deliberation when evaluating arguments, individuals can be biased and lazy when producing them. It's like a division of cognitive labor, and according to this theory, that's the source of so much of what we talk about on this show. Biased reasoning is individual reasoning, and it must be because the way groups make decisions is for each individual to reason from a biased position so that all perspectives, all wants and needs can be evaluated against each other to suss out the best arguments and come to the best decisions. It could be as simple as figuring out which movie to watch, or it could be of monumental consequence, like whether to keep a loved one on life support or enter into a world war. Deliberation through argumentation is fantastic for revealing all the varied points of view, all the attitudes in the group, all the different expertise and experience, and thus it generates reasons for one decision or another so the group can zero in on the best option. The key here is that we get at the truth, and by the truth I mean what is our best option, what is the thing that is best for the group, by banging our heads together. And to do that efficiently, we are genetically predisposed to produce biased arguments, but we are also predisposed to carefully evaluate the arguments of others. In a 2007 study that Mercier helped design, a team of Swiss cognitive scientists tricked people into evaluating their own reasoning more thoughtfully by making it seem as if it came out of the mind of someone else. For a variety of topics, subjects read a series of questions, and they reached a series of conclusions, and then they wrote arguments defending their conclusions. But in the next stage of the experiment, subjects got a chance to see the arguments of other subjects who disagreed with them. And if they wanted, they could change their answers. What the experimenters didn't reveal was that they had actually hidden in those arguments the subjects' own arguments from earlier. And they found that when presented as somebody else's argument, 69% of people identified their own poor reasoning when it was there. And so overall, as a group, by seeing their own arguments presented back to them as if there was someone else's, groups would go from half wrong on average to 75% correct. Researchers have seen the same thing play out in a number of experiments. For the cognitive reflection task, where you ask people things like, and you're going to love this, here we go, in a lake, there is a patch of lily pads. Every day, the patch doubles in size. If it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the lake, how long would it take for the patch to cover half the lake? Now, the answer to that is 47 days. It's the day before the last day because the pads double from covering half the pond to the entire thing. You just have to think about it backwards. 
Now, reasoning alone, 83% of people get that question incorrect and questions like it. And a third get all the questions incorrect on this test. But in groups of three or more, no one does. At least one member always sees the correct answer, and the resulting debate leads the group to the truth. Reasoning alone, you will rarely, if ever, produce arguments that run counter to your own point of view. And with no one to tell you that there are other points of view to consider, no one to poke holes in your theories, no one to reveal the weaknesses in your reasoning or produce counterarguments, you just spin in an epistemic hamster wheel. When you argue with yourself, you win. So the research suggests that we have two cognitive systems that evolve for the purpose of arguing, one that produces arguments and one that evaluates them. And we've covered a lot of ground on this podcast when it comes to the system that produces arguments. And that's the one that's biased. That's the one that falls prey to logical fallacies and motivated reasoning. In this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, we will begin exploring something we've rarely touched on. And that's the system that evaluates arguments. The one that listens to what people are saying and tries to figure out if it's true. Tries to figure out if they're attempting to persuade us to make a decision we don't want to make. The one that wants us to change our minds. That's the one that other people are using when we're trying to change theirs. It took about 70 years for psychology to develop a model for just how we do that. And in this episode, we sit down with the co-creator of that model, psychologist Richard Petty. And you'll hear what he has to say about its creation, how it works, and its legacy after this break. Summer is the perfect time to learn something new, and The Great Courses Plus is the perfect place to do that. With The Great Courses Plus, you can learn from award-winning experts about a variety of topics like human behavior, philosophy, history, science, and more, with the flexibility to enjoy lectures anytime, anywhere on The Great Courses Plus app. It's perfect for long road trips or plane rides or train rides, and they have a brand new course that I highly recommend called The Learning Brain. It's a fascinating look at how we learn so much more effectively when we believe that we can actually learn a subject. It makes the important point that you, italicized in quotes, aren't always the problem when it comes to understanding something. With The Learning Brain, you get 24 31-minute long lectures that tell you about the habits you can adopt to learn more effectively throughout your entire life. And you can learn in this course the factors like traumatic injuries and stress and mood that affect your gray matter. You're going to learn about semantic memory, how sleep affects learning, how aging affects learning, dyslexia, optimizing your learning, training your working memory. There's so much stuff in this course. It, it's unbelievable that you're going to get it for free. <gasps> Did I say free? Yes. That's right. The listeners of you are not so smart. Get this very special offer, which is you get a free trial with unlimited access to watch and listen to the entire library of The Great Courses Plus, including The Learning Brain, by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Sign up for your free trial right now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com. 
dot com slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In the 1970s, the field of attitude change and persuasion was, to put it lightly, a mess. Going back to the earliest days of psychology, the study of advertising and marketing, persuasion and propaganda of influence itself was a major feature of psychological research. But after World War II, with the whole world asking how it could be that the Nazis rose to power, how people could participate in genocide, influence research became the central focus of psychology. It was such an important topic that so many people are doing research that that's what sort of led to the collapse. That is legendary psychologist Richard Petty. Uh, Richard Petty, and I'm a professor of psychology at Ohio State University. Petty, along with fellow psychologist John Cassiopo, who recently passed away, developed what many consider to be the best model of how humans make sense of and are persuaded by messages that intend to change their minds. It's called the Elaboration Likelihood Model, and they developed it not so much to change the course of psychology, though it did, but to make sense of their own textbooks so they could pass their classes in college. When you read the textbooks at the time, they really were confusing because you'd get this, well, a credible source in this study did this, but in this study it it led to less persuasion, but in this study it had no effect, and in this study it interacted with this other variable, and it was just a series of findings, and, and it was really hard to, and all you could do to you know, pass a test it would be to try to memorize every individual study and what it found. There wasn't any conceptual coherence that helped you try to uh, uh, pull it all together, and so it was kind of frustrating. And, and in fact, there's this uh, a book called The Annual Review of Psychology, where people every four or five years try to review the literature in a certain domain. And if you go back to the time, the uh, uh, 70s, early 80s when we were doing our work and you read the chapters on attitudes and attitude change, they're they're pretty depressing. And people would just say things like, man, there's just a jumble of findings here that nobody can kind of understand, you know, when credibility works and doesn't. And and, and in some ways, it's like the replication crisis today. We have studies that say, oh, we found this effect, but this study didn't find any effect. Oh my gosh, this study found the opposite effect. And it's like, we, we just, you know, people would throw up their hands. And, and there, there's one uh, quote that I didn't look uh, up right now, but we have it in our uh, 1986 book where we introduced the elaboration likelihood model that basically said, you know, maybe we should just put attitude change aside for a while. And, and, and researchers should study something else because it, it just doesn't look like there's an accumulating science because there's so many different things. By the 1970s, psychology had generated an incredible amount of evidence into persuasion, but none of it seemed to fit together into a unified theory because each study seemed to contradict several others. What worked in one context didn't work in another, and what seemed like a persuasive speaker for one kind of message would not be persuasive for a different kind of message. That Everybody was doing studies on attitude change and, and throwing up defining into the literature that at, by the 70s, even though you know, people started studying this scientifically in the 20s, you know, it accelerated during World War II in the 40s and 50s, 60s. The whole field was about attitudes and attitude change for a while, that everybody was doing research, that there were so many findings that it became an embarrassment of riches and an embarrassment in the sense that the studies didn't all agree with each other. 
The operating assumption at the time was built on the idea that the effectiveness of a persuasive message hinged on how well the person, the target of the message, learned what that message said. A sociologist and political scientist named Harold Laswell produced a model of communication that said all communications between human beings could be broken down to who says what to whom, in which channel, and to what effect. Who referred to the communicator, says what referred to the message, in which channel referred to the medium or the context, and to whom referred to the audience. With what effect referred to the impact the message had on the audience, and that impact became the focus of psychological research for decades. But with each study, the evidence came with a caveat. For instance, credibility was more persuasive about issues like if the steel industry was to be blamed for the current steel shortage, or should antihistamines be sold without a prescription, or would TV be the end of movie theaters? Remember, this was a while back. But the same speaker who was considered an expert by one group might be considered a quack by another. And if so, the message would be accepted or rejected based on these people's estimation of the speaker's expertise. Yet, oddly enough, weeks later, some of those subjects would report they now considered the same arguments they once rejected to be sound if they had, over time, forgotten where they heard it. Sometimes, a single, strong, factually supported, well-produced thesis was more persuasive if presented alongside the opposition's argument. Sometimes, not. Sometimes, the order of presentation mattered. Sometimes, it didn't. Sometimes fear made a message more persuasive and sometimes less. Sometimes repetition worked. Sometimes repetition backfired. Well-organized content worked some of the time. Sometimes it caused people to reject the messages altogether. Everything from people's self-esteem to their involvement with the issue seemed to affect the findings of the research. But in another scenario, they affected people in a completely different way. So if you wanted to pass your graduate exams in psychology as a student of attitude change, you had to learn all of this, every study. So to help make sense of it all, Petty and Cassiopo painted one of the rooms of the house they were renting entirely in blackboard paint. But we did entirely paint uh, one room with uh, blackboard paint so you could write and erase the walls where we could plot ideas and uh, plot strategy and do all sorts of uh, play games and, and do all sorts of things. It became impossible to memorize all the different studies and when they did, because again, there was no conceptual coherence, but we outlined, well, maybe they're good under these conditions and maybe they're bad under those conditions, which wouldn't help you pass the test the next day. But, but it, it certainly led to us doing some research on that very topic where you could vary the number of arguments along with the quality, whether the arguments were on a topic that was important or not. And so we you know, really early on, we were able to outline um, uh, a number of different things. I, I always, uh, when I became an assistant professor after graduating grad school, I always felt like I should have taken a photograph of that wall. As they read hundreds of studies, they began to chalk up summaries on the wall, and slowly, in an effort to pass their tests, they began to group those studies together. What made them similar? And they began to notice a pattern, something every researcher before them had missed. First of all, they found that a message that increased persuasion in one situation almost certainly reduced it in others. In the same way, a tuxedo will improve your looks at a snazzy nightclub, but not so much at a baseball game. Second, they saw that there were two meta-level variables at play among the variables of communicator, context, message, and audience. 
they were all being influenced by a larger superordinate phenomenon that determined their impact. If you grouped messages by how likely a person was to pause and reflect on its content, all the findings sorted neatly into two categories. A message could produce one of two kinds of thinking, and both could lead to attitude change, but only one of them would become active depending on the conditions present at the time. That insight would lead to the development of what is still psychology's most robust theory of how to change attitudes, the elaboration likelihood model. It is kind of a mouthful, but that, that sounds uh, kind of complicated, and why in the world did they pick those, those terms? And, and so the, the term elaboration was designed to be a contrast in, in some ways to what the prominent model of attitude change had been before us, and that was a learning model. And, and a learning model, really, this, this was Hovland and, 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 you know, ever since the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, the idea was, in psychology, cognitive psychology was all about learning. What's the best way to get people to learn, whether it's a list of words or, or learning text? And so the simplest idea that Hovland had really was that, well, persuasion should be about learning. And it's probably the idea that the average layperson has, right? If you want to change people's attitudes about cigarettes, just teach them what the bad things are. And if they learn them, then they'll change, right? That's all there is to it. If you want people to wear their seatbelts, just teach them, you know, give them the three reasons. And if they learn that, that that's all there is to it. And, and so literally those early studies would measure, well, how much did you learn what the message said? And uh, it seemed like that should produce the effect. And all the studies were designed to, well, are you more likely to learn the message if a credible source says it or a non-credible source says it? But back then, they never really found that learning had anything to do with how persuaded people were, right? And so the evidence was right there from the, from the get-go that someone could learn the message and not be persuaded. Someone could not learn the message at all and be totally persuaded. So the first idea in elaboration was that it isn't just learning the information. Uh, elaboration refers to you add something of your own to the information. And so that's what the elaboration part is. You're going to add something. And so uh, you, you could just say it's, it's thinking, but if you think about something and you just ended up learning it or not learning and you don't add anything to it, you know, we thought thinking isn't quite you know, the right word, but that would be the closest word to it. Are you thinking about the information? And the critical thing about thinking is, do you add something? And so you could get a piece of information and uh, if you think about it, you might go, well, that's really stupid, right? And so I could learn it, but if I think it's stupid, it's not going to persuade me. If I uh, learn it and I think it's great, I add, someone says, uh, use this laundry soap uh, because it'll make your clothes smell good. It's like, okay, well, make my clothes smell good. Just learning that information alone isn't sufficient to persuade you, you might have to add, oh, if my clothes smell good, then people will hang out with me, right? And so it's that, that thing you added that uh, makes a difference. And that's, that's what persuaded you, that um, I added, oh, people will hang out with me. Just because my clothes smelling good could be good or bad. You know, it all depends on what you think about it. That's the elaboration part. And so, and then likelihood is that, ah, okay, well, not everyone's going to be always motivated and able to add something to it. And so you can add something good to it, which would 
make you more persuaded. Or you could add something that's negative. Uh, I don't want my clothes. I, I want my, don't want my clothes to smell like flowers because, because that'll be embarrassing. Uh, and, and so that's adding something negative to it that makes that argument for you not very good. And so uh, are you likely to elaborate on it? And that's the likelihood part. And so if you're likely to elaborate, then the thoughts that you have about the message, your positive thoughts or negative thoughts, will be what determines whether or not you are persuaded. That's the high elaboration route to persuasion, or what we call the central route, where you're focused on the central merits to you of the information that's presented. Your elaborations are what's determining how influenced you are. But if elaboration is low, and I'm not thinking about the information at all, low elaboration, then my elaborations aren't going to matter, right? Whether I think, because I never thought, because my clothes smell good, people will like to hang out with me. I didn't even have that thought because I'm not elaborating. And so one could have said that when you're not elaborating, there's just no persuasion at all, right? So that would be saying all persuasion only occurs under high elaboration. But one of the things about the elaboration likelihood model was that even if you're not likely to be elaborating because you don't think the issue is important or you're very distracted from engaging in processing or the message you know, is too com complicated for you, you can still be persuaded. And that's what the peripheral route is about, that you could be persuaded even if uh, elaboration is low, if there are simple cues in the environment, like a credible source, or a positive mood, I'm feeling good, um, or something, or there's a lot of arguments, and so you make the inference that if there's a lot of information, it must be right. Things that could lead you to accept a message or say you agree with it, even if you're not thinking, elaboration is low. And so that was the peripheral route. So these peripheral cues uh, would be operating. And so the, we ended up calling it the elaboration likelihood model because the likelihood of elaboration is really the driver of the whole thing. If the likelihood of elaboration is high, you're motivated and able to think. You'll be influenced by the thoughts that you have, your elaborations in response to the message. But if the likelihood of elaboration was low, then you would be influenced only to the extent that there were simple cues present in the message that could allow you to accept it without engaging in much elaboration or thinking. And so we called it that even though it's kind of a mouthful to, to try to, one, contrast it with what had come before, learning, that it's not about learning, it's about elaborating and whether you are or are not elaborating. When elaboration likelihood is high, people tend to take the central route. But as elaboration likelihood drops off, people tend to move on to the peripheral route. Variables that matter on the central route become meaningless on the peripheral and vice versa. And you can think of this as the central route is a busy street passing straight through the heart of Argument City. On the central route, you have to go slow, pay attention, navigate carefully. You have to think, what are the speaker's main points? Are they logical? Are they cohesive? Are they strong? Do they cite evidence? Is the evidence well vetted? Are the sources trustworthy? On the peripheral route, it's sort of the equivalent of taking a highway bypass around Argument City. You can go fast, and you can still see the city from afar, but at the expense of learning all of its details. The message becomes hazy, and only the most salient and simple cues remain. Is the speaker attractive? Does this message contain a lot of big words? Do they speak eloquently? 
Do they have a prestigious degree? Are they famous? Will there be pizza at the end of this lecture? Either route can lead to the destination, attitude change, but there's a trade-off. On the central route, you get to see Argument City for what it really is, the good and the bad, the grimy streets, the charming shops, the unique characters, and the mundane office workers. On the peripheral route, you only see Argument City in the abstract, the skyline and the billboards, the famous landmarks and the neon lights. Two factors determine which route one will travel, motivation and ability. Motivation is the willingness and desire to pursue one route over the other, and ability is the cognitive wherewithal to do so. Motivating factors include personal relevance or a high need for cognition, and ability factors include a lack of distraction, personal experience, or expertise with the topic, or a clearly communicated, well-articulated message. The more motivated and able one is to process a persuasive message, the more likely that person will remain on the central route. Uh, Motivation is just how much you want to process the message. And so the the one that's uh, probably most appealing and obvious to people is you can make the message. If you make the message seem that it's relevant to you, personally important, that that will get people to want to process it uh, on their own. But there are other things you can do if you can't make the message personally important. You can provide incentives to do it. You can instill a sense of responsibility. So, so for example, in, in some research, we might say, oh, you are the only person who's responsible for assessing this, as opposed to you're one of 100 people and we're going to average all your responses. And so you can imagine that if you're one of 100 people, it's a group decision. You, you, you will not put as much effort into it as if, oh, my goodness, I'm personally responsible for evaluating this. So you make the message relevant to you either by saying it's going to affect your life in some way or you're personally responsible for, for uh, doing it. If you can't um, motivate them through one of those two things, another thing that we've tried is uh, uh, sometimes you can put rhetorical questions in the message. And, and so, you know, you're giving an argument and you just, in a typical message, you say, and therefore this would be good for students. And then you move on to the next argument. And therefore this would be good for students too. But if you make a slight change and you go da-da-da-da-da-da-da, wouldn't that be good for students? And you ask the question, it does get people to think a little bit more. So you can motivate them to think by literally posing the question for them in the message that they will think about a little bit. Yeah, that would, and they, if they hadn't been thinking about whether it's good for students, they will then start to think about it and elaborate. So those are all in the domain of trying to motivate people. Ability, uh, sometimes there's natural ability. And so, for example, if a message is kind of complicated, it might require a particular kind of knowledge. And so more knowledgeable people about politics, for example, are are able to process the merits of a political argument. Um, But that's something that you bring with you to the situation. Uh, Other times, ability is just a matter of uh, circumstance. So if I have kind of weak arguments, you you can... um, distract people from trying to process them. There's the famous story about the attorney, Clarence Darrow, who, when he didn't have a particularly strong argument to do, he would get his cigar and he would go in front of the jury and and he'd uh, sort of smoke it right there. And it looked like, you know, is the ash going to fall on the ground? And people were mesmerized by what he was doing there. And they kind of weren't missing. They were missing the substance of the argument. But but he would argue that, but but they sort of felt like I presented a lot of substances, but he was distracting them from the merits of the argument. So 
distraction as a way to do it. And sometimes they'll do it with, you know, attractive models in the, in the ad when they have to give you the, uh, or they'll read the, uh, uh, Disclaimer, you've all heard these on the radio, right, where the disclaimer comes at five times the speed of the the regular message. And so, you know, if the message is too fast, you just can't process it. And so, you know, the bad stuff is is presented at, you know, three times the speed of the good stuff. And so so that's a way of, you know, inhibiting your ability to process a message. But because it's the elaboration likelihood model, the first thing we want to know before we can predict, you know, what effect a variable is going to have is where are you on that continuum? Are you on the low end, the middle, or are you on the high end? And so to figure that out, you've kind of got to diagnose the situation of, of how motivated are people to think about this particular message? And then second, how able are they to think? And if both are high, you know, you're, you're up there on the high end. If both are low, of course, you're on the low end, but you could be somewhere in, in the middle as well. My favorite study of Petty and Cassiope was one in which they told college students about a new policy that would require seniors to pass a comprehensive exam to graduate. They told students ahead of watching a video presentation of persuasive appeals that the policy changes were either planned for that year or many years down the line. Right away, some students felt motivated to pay attention while others were less inclined. The motivated and unmotivated students were further divided into two groups each. One saw either nine or three strong arguments, and the other saw either nine or three weak arguments. The strong arguments included the fact that the most prestigious universities require such exams to ensure their degrees communicate excellence, and students from such universities are more likely to get hired and get higher-paying jobs. The weak arguments said the comprehensive exams harkened back to the traditions of the ancient Greeks, and the fear it produced would probably encourage people to study more. Petty and Cassiopo found that the more motivated the students, the more they took the central route. And on that route, the stronger arguments were more persuasive, and the more of them they saw, the better. On the central route, the weak arguments were ineffective. They saw the flaws in the emotional opinion-based messages and ripped them to pieces. But the crucial thing here was, if you were motivated and you heard nine arguments, they had to be good ones to persuade you. In fact, if you heard nine bad arguments, you were less persuaded than if you heard three bad arguments. But if you were unmotivated, then you took the peripheral route. And for these people, the strong and weak arguments were equally persuasive. So when they heard more arguments of any kind, even bad ones, they were more persuaded than when they heard fewer. So for them, nine arguments was highly persuasive and three was not because they weren't paying attention to the content of the arguments. They were just paying attention to the number. Yeah, so uh, under the high-thinking route, you're going to focus on the merits of the information. And, and so uh, this was probably the area of, of research and persuasion about which the least work has been done, right? So that uh, although we know that the merits of the arguments make a big difference when issues are important to people and they have the motivation and ability to think, um, the question of, well, what is it that makes an argument good and what is it? that makes it bad is not very well studied, except for, for, for two dimensions that everybody would agree on, I think. And, and, and uh, these will sound somewhat obvious, uh, probably. And that's that. I don't know. I'm searching, I'm searching my mind right now, and I'm like, hmm, what could they be? But go ahead. Well, when I say them, you're, you're going to say, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so an argument is, is really good if it points to a consequence 
that is really desirable to you, right? And so if I said we, we should raise tuition at your university, and I'm talking to undergraduates, because when we raise tuition, we will hire more professors to have smaller classes, and everyone will learn more and get a great job. And I go, whoa, <laughs> that is really desirable. That's what I want. So if that, you know, doing raising tuition is going to lead to all that, um, I, I want it. I'll have a positive uh, elaboration to that. And so the consequence you mentioned has to be really desirable, but that's not sufficient. They have to think that desirable consequence is likely to occur. You can think of it even, uh, you know, in gambles. That would be a simpler thing than a persuasive message. Like, should I put my money here? And you'll think, well, how much am I going to win if I put my money here? How much could I win? And the more I could win, the more desirable the outcome, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the desirability part. But it isn't just that. You should also factor in how likely I am to win. Because if the likelihood of winning is zero, then it doesn't matter how much, how desirable it is, right? And so if you think about gambles and betting, those are the two. So the expectancy value thing pervades you know, all sorts of decisions that we make. But in persuasion, you think about the argument that I presented. Uh, if I said, oh, if we raise tuition, you, you will live you know, a long, healthy life. You'll live to 110 and never have any illness. And people would say, well, that's really desirable. But that's, that doesn't seem at all likely. Right? <laughs> I don't see how that could possibly happen. So, so they would denigrate the likelihood, and so it wouldn't be as compelling. So, so those two are the ones that everyone agrees on. And, and then it's a, a, a current area of research, what, what other factors uh, you'd throw in. And so some people would say, well, uh, after likelihood and desirability, it'll be more persuasive if it's novel. Right? So if, if I already thought about the thing that you told me about in the argument, uh, maybe it's desirable and maybe it's likely, but I've already considered it. So it's not going to ch- move me from where I am because the information doesn't have any uh, novelty to me. Right? Uh, and then and beyond, beyond that, there are all sorts of individual differences, that, that uh, different dimensions that people value. So, so the first three, uh, desirability, likelihood, and uh, novelty, uh, you'd say virtually everybody would consider those. But beyond that, you then have to consider what kind of uh, person you are. Then you start to get into personality. And so some people are very concerned about their image. And so if it makes them look good, that kind of argument would make them uh, uh, persuaded. If you thought about selling a car, right? And so you want good consequences. You want them to be likely. You want them to be novel. But then you'd say, well, what is a good consequence for you? And then here's where we get into individual differences. And so for you, it might be gas mileage, right? That's what makes a consequence because you, you are concerned about the environment, uh, let's say. But for other people, it might be uh, how uh, much uh, this car will make me look powerful because I'm into the image that the car conveys. And so beyond the first three, you, you start to get into individual variation. And that's where you know, social media today, it used to be you could only focus on the first three, uh, likelihood, desirability, and novelty across people. But that's what, you know, uh, the whole Facebook thing is all about these days, that, that uh, advertisers want to know a lot about you and what you value and what you like in particular so they can target the arguments and really give you a message that's tailored to be strong for you, even if it wouldn't be strong for me. 
because they know you're an environmentalist and they'll give you cars that, you know, uh, get good gas mileage and they know someone else is concerned about image and they'll give them cars with, you know, showing how, how powerful you'll look. Well, let's go down the peripheral route for a second then. Um, and what are some things that seem to be that, that if you're on that side of the, if you're thinking low, um, cues that seem to indicate that this is uh, a pers- a persuasive message. Yeah, so here's where you mentioned Laswell before, his famous who says what to whom, you know, under what channel, with what effect. And, and so <clears throat> you start to think about each of those uh, variables separately. And so you start with who, you know, who says it. And, and the big three are the credibility of the source, the attractiveness of the source, and how powerful the source is. And so all three of those are have the potential to, to serve as, as simple cues, credible sources, uh, powerful sources, attractive sources. And under each of those, you, you can divide you know, each of those into more specific components. And so you say, well, attractiveness, what does that mean? Well, there's physical attractiveness, there's social attractiveness, there's uh, people who are similar to us are, are are more likable, and so there's there's really a you know a whole long list of things that are associated with the source. So anything uh, you know that has a positive value to it can serve as a positive cue. And, and so you can say anything that makes a person uh, seem likable or desirable or whatever uh, would be something that, if I'm not thinking about what you had to say, could make me go along with you. Uh, then, okay, so that's the source. Then you can move on to the message. And, and so the, one of the first things we studied was just how long the message is. And so does the message seem to have a lot of information uh, or not? And if it seems to have a lot, people will say, oh, must be a good idea if there's a lot of information. But anything else about the message that makes it look like it's substantive, right? And so in some research, people would find uh, well, if you use big words, even words that people don't understand, it, it, it makes it look like, oh, there must be something to this as opposed to, as opposed to the language is too simplistic. So the complexity of the message uh, could make a difference. But anything that, that makes a message seem positive uh, can do it. Then there are aspects of the person themselves. Right? And so um, if you're just feeling good, in the presence of a message. So I read a message and when I'm done with the message, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, and you may not realize that you're feeling pretty good because the message used, you know, was accompanied by a song that you really like, or, or the message was, you know, literally on a very pleasant paper that you read it on instead of just black and white, it was, was all colorful, but you're feeling good after reading the message As, and you're not thinking about the message per se it's reasonable to infer that, well, if I just read this ad for something and I feel good, it must be because I like whatever it is that you said in the message. I like the car that you were advertising or the medication that you were advertising. So there are all sorts of things that you could manipulate about the person, the most prominent of which is, you know, am I feeling good or bad uh, about the, the message? And so there's the source, the message, the recipient, which we just talked about feeling good, and then the context in which a message is conveyed. And the context, again, could be pleasant. If I'm reading a message in a, you know, a dingy, dirty room, again, I'm not feeling really good, and, and some of that negativity will, will spill over in the sense of, of a peripheral cue to make me not like the message as opposed to 
the chair is comfortable, you know, everything, the air quality is good. It's, it's just a lovely room. And I'm reading the message and just, again, those, those good feelings in this case from the context uh, make me like the message. But the bottom line is under the peripheral route, anything in you, in the source, in the message, in the context that convey a positive signal of some sort might be sufficient to get me to go along with what you have to say, because under the peripheral route, it's not about what I'm thinking about what you have to say. It's about one of these things that's extrinsic to what, what you have to say. Well, and here's the thing. We'll, we'll sort of stop here, but I figure you have a lot to say about it, which is, um, so we do live in this interesting time where I think if you get on social media and you spend much time on it, there's a good chance you're going to get into an argument. Uh, we're also very polarized currently, and there's a lot of opportunity to agree and disagree about what people should or should not be doing. Um, and then you have aspects like of just the natural world that we are find ourselves strangely disagreeing about, whether it's whether or not climate change is real, whether or not the earth is flat, um, whether vaccines do or do not work. And there's just a lot of eagerness for um, how do we, if we either we think we know the better way or we happen to know the factually correct thing, um, how do we persuade other people to see things our way? And I'm wondering, since I feel like I'm going right to the mountaintop, and so when it comes to interpersonal persuasion, uh, how can the elaboration likelihood model be applied simply and easily by just, you know, people out there? What, what, are, your, what are your recommendations? Well, one of the things that's really changed, I think, about persuasion now in our whole culture compared to when we started this work you know, many, many 30 some years ago uh, is that issues now are so tied to people's identities and groups. And, and that did not so much used to be the case, right? That people would say they, could, they still had identities, but they weren't as bound up in particular issues and, and so forth, right? And so one of the things these days that's unfortunate is, is that people all of a sudden are going to be against something because they think my group doesn't favor, my, my group thinks, you know, climate change is a hoax. That's what my group thinks. And, and so if I change my opinion, it isn't just I can listen to you objectively and, and, and uh, think about what arguments you have and so forth, or even be persuaded by the fact that scientists say this, and which would be a, in the old days, just a credible, scientists used to be a credible cue for people who didn't weren't able to think about it. It would have been unthinkable 25 years ago to say, uh, if, if you said, oh, you know, 99% of scientists think X, you know, and then you had to express your opinion, virtually everybody would go along with that if it was something that they couldn't understand. But now people have a second level of, oh, my group doesn't trust scientists, right? So I can't uh, use that. So the elaboration likelihood model would still say, well, it's Q-based. You still have a Q-based decision, but the Q isn't coming from the credibility of the source, scientists. The Q is, what does my group think, right? And so to sort of break, and, and that has become so much more dominant. It's become a Q that's, you know, almost all powerful compared to other cues, like credibility and attractiveness and so forth. It's my group. If my group has a position, I have to stay with my group if I'm identified with my group. So, you know, not everybody is super identified with their group, whatever it is. But if you are and you feel my, my group's here, I just can't abandon that because now I'm abandoning my whole group. And so one of the challenges will be 
So it's still within the elaboration likelihood model in the sense of, but now we have a queue that we never even considered before, right? You wouldn't find anything in our early work about group identity, right? Because it wasn't a huge thing. And, and so it's a queue, but wow, is it a powerful queue? And, and so, you know, the strategies now are, are there ways to, you know, that people are studying, can, can, are there ways to disidentify with this group or, or to try to see your group is more similar to the other group so that, so it's not as powerful a cue or the only way to get the group identity cue not to be there is to, and, and people try this too, is to make the issue so personally important that I, that I won't rely on the cue of my group identity. That's to say climate change is going to affect your children. And so do you, do you care about that? And so maybe you think, oh, I have to think about this because my children, to try to make it personally important to you that maybe you say, I'll get beyond my, my group identity cue. But, but what's interesting about today's environment, I think, is that it, it, we've got a new cue, it's group identity. Um, and it's become such a powerful cue that it may be hard. It, it, it's hard to work around. But, but that's where, you know, a lot of uh, interesting contemporary research is, is looking at. Mm-hmm. Well, what about an issue like uh, vaccination? Like uh, how can the elaboration likelihood model be best applied to a situation where, let's say you're dealing with an anti-vaxxer or, um, or just someone who is maybe on the fence and is not um, sure whether or not they do or do not want to vaccinate their children? Yeah, so someone who's legitimately on the fence and is ambivalent. And ambivalence is one of those things that typically gets people to think because ambivalence is uncomfortable and you really want to figure out which side is right or wrong because you don't want to stay in a state of ambivalence because you don't know what to do, right, if you're legitimately ambivalent. So ambivalence is not a bad thing. And sometimes it's good to induce ambivalence in someone who's, let's say, someone's against your view. If you can make them at least ambivalent, they're at least more likely to listen to you because they're trying to resolve the ambivalence. But that's different from someone who's in, you know, the first thing you'd want to know is why are you an anti-vaccination person? And if it's part of your group identity, I'm part of the, whatever my community is, and we're all anti-vaxxers and, and, and whatever, they're not listening to the information because they're just so tied up with their group identity and it's such a threat to abandon it that you either have to start to weaken the identity itself, right? Well, do you know your group also, you know, if you can find something their group uh, favors that, you know, they disfavor, you could start to plant some seeds of doubt about whether that identity is the right thing, right? Because if, if their decisions are all being driven by this identity, you have to first undermine that identity, make them at least less certain about that identity or more ambivalent about that identity. And then once you can shake that a bit, then they're going to be open to information uh, from people on the other side. And let's say that they're not uh, groupish. Uh, we just follow the basic tenets of the, of the elaboration likelihood model. Then we look for, um, but there's no reason to modify it for something like this. Is it, it, It's already right there on paper what to do. Is that what you would say? Yep. Yep. If they're, you know, honestly ambivalent, then, then the same kinds of principles you want to get them to think about the information, either by motivating them or enabling them. If, if the arguments are too complicated for them, you have to simplify them. If, if you, you need to get uh, people to present the information that are similar to them, so they're more likely to listen to them and, and, and adopt the, the information. And so the central route is typically best because it you know, leads to longer term change. 
But uh, in the absence of that, you know, peripheral root change is good in the short term because once they sort of um, feel like they've moved in your direction or think your your sense is right. So, you, you know, even if it's getting a bunch of celebrities they favor to show how they vaccinate their children. And so even if they don't understand all the arguments about vaccinations, they go, well, all these people I like and admire are doing it, so maybe I should do it. Then once they sort of move to thinking it's potentially a good idea, then you can present information to bolster it. And, and once they're on that side, they'll want to hear that information in a way to help justify what, what position they've taken. One last question before we head out. When is it good to go on the peripheral route? Like, when when is that the better option? The peripheral routes, you know, sometimes people are just incapable of understanding the argument, right? And, and they just can't process it, right? And, and so uh, there, there are certain domains in which, you know, I'm not going to understand nuclear physics. I'm just not. You know, not that I'm incapable of it, but it would take some time to, to really understand it. And, and so if, if there was, let's say, a particular issue of that that um, was before the country, then, you know, we're going to have to rely on the peripheral route. We're going to have to get experts to, to, to make cases and let people um, uh, rely on that. And, th- and then again, as I said before, sometimes once people, uh, you know, some advertisers are perfectly happy with the peripheral route. And, and that's, let's just take the simplest case where you associate a very well-liked celebrity with your product. The, the big danger of the peripheral route is it doesn't lead to long-lasting change. But advertisers fix that sometimes by, in the store, having a picture of the celebrity on their product or you know, having a display with a statue of the celebrity or a, a cardboard cutout you know, pointing to the shelf. And, and, and so the peripheral route can you know, uh, be saved from its flaws by continually reminding people of what the cue is on which people are changing. The benefit of the central route is if I'm really convinced the product is a good one, then you don't have to have the picture of the celebrity on the can anymore because I've already changed my attitude legitimately and I'll carry it with me and I'll act on it. You don't need the picture. You don't need the cues everywhere. Well, um, I could talk to you about this for six weeks straight, uh, but uh, I feel like we have to stop somewhere and make a show out of it. So um, I guess the last thing I'd like to know is if people want to keep up with what you're doing, uh, if they want to know... Uh, how to find you out there. What is the best way to do that? Uh, best way is probably on the web. I have, I have a website where we try to keep it updated about the latest research that we're doing. And so if they just go to um, you know, my website, they'll be able to find what current research we're doing, um, be able to find recent uh, articles that we've published and all that good stuff. Richard Petty's website is richardpetty.com. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For previous episodes, go to that website or you can go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. The opening music of that is Clash by Caravan Palace. 
The interstitial music in this episode is by Incompetech. You can find their stuff at incompetech.com. You can find the show on Twitter at NotSmartBlog, me at David McCraney. You can also join in on group conversations over at Facebook. It's just slash you are not so smart. You can also pitch in to help make the show better, to keep it going. It's a one-person operation. Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Any level of donation gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher levels, you get t-shirts and uh, signed books and all sorts of cool stuff. Keep spreading the word. Keep telling people to listen. We've got a lot of new episodes coming up soon about all manner of things. Memory, evil, fake news, all that coming soon.